you could turn your Bibles to the book of Romans, chapter 1. Now, we're not going to exposit this text tonight, but I wanted to read it so I can let it, we can let it kind of sink in our minds as we go through this material, and we're going to be playing this against the, the truth of what Paul has spoken of here. And this is a timeless truth. And this is a really an overview of all cultures, all societies, from the very first one up until today. And we're going to read beginning in verse 16. Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, that is to know of him, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. And then Paul goes on to describe the behavior of this exchange that takes place, and it's primarily a sexual behavior exchange, uh, but it also includes the mind, includes the giving up of the mind. And actually, the word in verse 28, uh, dokimazo, it says, and since in my translation here in the end, ESV, it says, it says they did not see fit. It's actually one Greek word. It's dokimazo. And it means to test, approve, or examine. So, in other words, God gave them up to an undiscerning or unexamined mind. They, they lost their ability to distinguish between truth and error. So, last week, we... We're tucking that away. Last week, we introduced biblical cosmology and we contrasted it with 
this pagan cosmology that has taken root in the West. And we talked about some of the history that is some of what has contributed to this here in the West, such as the Secular Academy. We talked about the goal of pagan cosmology, which is to remove all the distinctions that drive us toward a sort of oneist divine view of the universe. And so we looked at the evidence that the West has changed cosmologies and then finally why we have changed cosmology, cosmologies and, and its appeal to this generation. So this week, I want to do kind of a, the part two, uh, the second half of, of this, uh, this two-part series. And then as we move on, I was talking to Larry into the next coming week and weeks beyond that, we're going to shrink this down to everyday life. We're going to shrink this down to how this fits into our lives. How does this fit into our family? How does this fit into our view of marriage, of uh, biblical manhood, biblical womanhood? And so we're, we're, we're going to get there. So uh, it may seem big and lofty now, but uh, uh, I, I trust by the Lord's uh, wisdom that we'll, we'll be able to take some things away from this. So this week I want to talk about how to address this onslaught of Eastern paganism from an apologetic standpoint. And apologetics means a defense, right? We're making a defense. So think of it as the defensive response to how we defend our faith and think of evangelism as sort of the offensive way that we um, share the gospel and, and present the gospel to people. So I want to talk about how to do that. And so I have two points that I want to make tonight. And don't worry, they're long points. You didn't, you didn't drive here for nothing. And it's two because I didn't have three. The first point is, what are the consequences of choosing this pagan cosmology? What are the consequences? And then the second point is, how do we use biblical cosmology to confront the culture? And how do we, along with that, how do we in turn give the gospel into a culture that has given up uh, God, that has given up the understanding of a creature God? So first, what are the consequences of choosing this pagan cosmology? Well, one thing we want to do is we want to understand the level of pride that is involved here. Uh, that's leading our culture to nothing short of societal suicide. Even if the world of unbelievers were entirely composed of atheists, they would still be exercising a religious faith. So people have been shrink-wrapped in this cosmology of pluralism and philosophic naturalism, and they don't view themselves as being religious people. Right, I think Larry even brought that up again. We made the point last week. You hear that saying, well, I'm, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. So their faulty presuppositions only deepen their deception. They don't see themselves that way. And by and large, the average evangelical has accepted that argument. Uh, 
that to be religious is a choice. We've bought that. We've been hoodwinked into believing that education, politics, and culture at large has no connection to religion. But that idea is not only unbiblical, but it's, it's actually logically absurd. So all human beings, as we just read, were made in the image of God. And they're created to worship God. They're created to rule over the works of God's hands. And they do that by interpreting our world truthfully. According to God's infallible self-revelation. So therefore, there is no such thing as an actual atheist. <laughs> we, just re- we just read that. And the reason why is because in order to function in this world, you must be able to interpret it. And that interpretation is a moral exercise. When an unbeliever gives credit to the creation for its own origin, its own existence, that is an act of interpretation. It's an act of religious faith. It's an act of worship. So with that premise, there are only two religions in the world of which all people fit into, the religion of biblical Christianity and the worship of the true creator God, who is Trinity, or it is the religion and the worship of self. So I I like the story that one Christian apologist has told, he says, take an average politician, right? We have an election, we we all love the election cycles, right? They're, They're so much fun. He says, take an an average politician and he runs on a campaign that promises that he won't let his religious convictions affect his job, right? And a year into that campaign, the same politician, he's pulled over in a convertible with a trunk full of drugs and female escorts. And when he's interviewed in handcuffs, he says, look, I promised the American people that I would not let my religious beliefs interfere with my job, and I'm here to say, by golly, that I have kept my promise. (laughs) You see, that doesn't work. It doesn't work. It doesn't fly. And it doesn't fly because it is impossible to function and not exercise moral discernment. Every moral decision that a person makes is a religious activity of worship. We have to understand that. So when somebody says that they're not religious, They're deceived. They're deceived. The unbeliever in their darkened mind has canceled God's authority as the revealer of absolute truth and moral law. So, again, consider the pride that's involved here. What the unbeliever has done in challenging God's authority by attempting to create his own pseudo-reality is deepen his own slavery to the powers of darkness. And these roots of paganism, they run very deep. They have completely given up their minds to a whole different way of seeing the universe. You see, this isn't just about sexuality. It's about a whole new way of existing. It's a whole new way of seeing the entire universe. They live in a 24-7 lie. Or in the word of the apostle, they have exchanged the truth of God for a lie. You see, they live their lives within this exchange that has taken place. In rejecting the transcendence of God, they have infused the creation with divine powers. 
So, you know, the academy would not admit to describe or subscribing to paganism. They wouldn't, they wouldn't ever come out and say that I'm a pagan. But pantheistic cosmology is symbiotic with Darwinism. Darwinism and this neo-spiritual paganism are bedfellows because both systems embrace the idea that the universe is self-originating, self-sustaining, self-defining. In other words, it is divine. So the pagan worldview is not some philosophic invention that originated in some ancient cave somewhere. And it isn't some secret society of fringe people. That's, that's, that's the movies. <laughs> It's my personal conviction that is now the worldwide view and the majority uh, view here in, in the West. I believe it is the majority view in the West. And that makes sense because as we abandon the creator God, this oneist paganism is in fact the default religion of our, of our entire fallen human race. Uh, flip over to Leviticus 18 for me. Now, this is just one of many relevant passages to our premise that oneism, right? And, and oneism, again, if we define that, it's the belief that all is just one, right? There's no distinction between the creator and the, and the created, right? It's just one. Everything is one and everything is divine. So this oneist view is the removal of the binary, right? And it is our default religion. So look at Look at this, and I won't read all of this. I'll save you guys that. But it does say here that in verse 3 of 18, it says, You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You are to follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. And then God goes on to explain and describe the behavior of these pagan nations that surrounded God's covenant people. Of course, later on, they would become the nation of Israel. And to summarize this list that's given here in chapter 18, it includes the following. Incest, homosexual behavior. And again, homosexual is, is one, right? It is essentially the worship of self. Same. It is bestiality, adultery, child sacrifice and the dedication of children to cult prostitutes as well as other various sexually disordered activity. And if we look over at verse 24, he says, do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things for by all these, all these the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean. 
and the land became unclean so that I punished its iniquity and the land vomited out its inhabitants. Do none of these abominations. The people who were before you did all these abominations. So these pagan nations were targeted for divine judgment for the same reasons that Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed 500 years earlier. The sexual perversion that you read about there is the result of rejecting the sacred distinctions God has made in male and female relations, humans and animals, parents and children, right? Parents are to love their children, not to kill them. And the holy covenant of heterosexual monogamous marriage in the harmonious bringing together of two opposites. See, that's what God does. God harmonizes like a lock and key and brings opposites together. So oneism is what we see here in Leviticus 18. And you can read the next two chapters in 20. It continues, and we could go many other places to illustrate this. So this idea of oneism, this failure to recognize the distinctions that God has made, is mankind's default religion. And then if you combine this sexual perversion with necromancy, which is the practice of communicating with the dead, with witchcraft, mediums, the emptying of the mind, fortune-telling, interpreting omens, all of this is part and parcel to the world religion of paganism, which rejects the distinctions that God has hallowed. Uh, someone sent me a picture this week of a local mag magazine stand that was full of magazines promoting this paganized spirituality. And you see, this is a violation of the boundaries that God has placed man within. And those that, those that think that mediums and fortune-telling and all this is, is only on the fringe of the culture, well, that's simply not the case. Oh, consider this for a moment. The entire field of psychology, the entire field of psychology is this pagan spirituality. I, that's a bold statement. I, I recognize that. And we don't have time to, I don't have time to prove it tonight. But the catch-all phrase, mental health, how many times have you heard that? Mental health. Well, that's just a, a term to describe psychology or the essence of psychology. And it is the same paganized spirituality that Israel was warned against in Leviticus, just in this very same chapter. It's, it's cloaked in different terminology. That's the only difference. So what is known today as the field of psychology is the West's version of this pagan spirituality. Psychology is a multi-billion dollar industry that's pushing wicked philosophies. It pushes mind-altering drugs that has opened up countless people to demonic influence. And we're reminded of Colossians 2.8 where it says, quote, See to it, no one makes a prey of you by philosophy and empty deceit 
according to human traditions, according to the stuchio, if I said that right, powers, elemental spirits, these are demons, and not according to Christ. Unquote. So you know what necromancy, yoga, tea leaves, astrology, mental health, psychology, you know what all this is? It is, this, it is the search for unholy power. It is the seeking out of power. It is the seeking out of knowledge and wisdom apart from God and his infallible word. It is the love of omniscience, which has not been granted man. So that is the connection to this failure to recognize the distinctions, you see. Man was not given this ability, but yet he longs for it, and he seeks it from ways that God has not allowed him to seek it from. You see, we are to seek God through the word of God and the wisdom that is logos, and only logos is the proper way for us to find wisdom. So the modern pagan world order is designed to separate men from God, and it includes, but is not limited to, this following list. I'm going to give you this list in rapid fire. Perennial philosophy, naturalism, Darwinism, atheism, environmentalism, postmodernism, pantheistic evolutionary conception, population reduction schemes, Gaia, modern ideologies, secular humanism, transhumanism, evolutionary materialism, cosmic pantheism, the new world order concept, green religion or climate change, higher and lower biblical criticism, biblical deconstructionism, evolutionary theism, illumined masonry, nihilism, Satanism, Gnosticism, critical race theory, reincarnation, evolution, karma, yoga, transcendental med meditation, centered prayer, mindfulness, mindfulness meditation, spiritism, human sacrifice, occultism, Enneagram, ancient and modern mystery religions, Luciferianism, monism, magic, extraterrestrials, we're hearing a lot of that lately, space brothers, Hather of the UFO of God, Baphomet, Death of God Theology, Progressivism, Leftism, Communism, Socialism, and the Neutrality Principle. Well, you say, what is that? It is Eve's theory of knowledge. So what is this Neutrality Principle? It is the... Yeah, well, I wish we had time to go through all these. These are all forms of lies that have been molded into this new idea that you can find some sense of meaning and self-worth apart from God's divine word. This is all rooted in pagan oneist idea of the universe, that God does not exist. So... What is the neutrality principle? The origin of the neutrality principle is in the Garden of Eden. Its father is the evil one who tempted Eve to approach the question of eating from the forbidden tree in a neutral or unbiased fashion. He cunningly suggested that Eve adopt a neutral position in order to decide who was right, 
God's argument or the snake's argument. So we might call this Eve's theory of knowledge. And like modernists of our own age, Eve doubted and therefore rejected God's word as authoritative and conclusive. As a true neutralist, she determined for herself, for the first time in human history, who was right. She weighed it out. She reasoned and deducted logically independently from God. You see, she rejected the word of God. So our young people today, they need to understand that this new way of gaining freedom is really just a recycled ancient lie. And every civilization that has rebelled against God's sacred distinctions and sought to set themselves up as the arbiter of truth, every civilization has crumbled. And that is, of course, illustrated in the Canaanite conquest of Joshua, and it's illustrated through the fall of Israel later on as they invested themselves in idolatry through these pagan fertility cults and false gods, false deities. So I want to mention here about this erotic freedom and where we're headed. And some of you may be familiar with the term dualism. Rene Descartes, he was an early 17th century philosopher. And dualism is the idea that there are two separate views of human existence. There is the mental and then there is the body. And they are distinct, they are separated from one another. And along with that idea is the false idea that the mental can exist outside or apart from the body. So these are Gnostic ideas, and they're in seed form when they are refuted by Paul in Colossians and also touched on in 1 Corinthians 6.18 where it says, Paul says to the Corinthians, he says, quote, flee from sexual immorality, or, or the word is porneia, Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. What is he saying? Well, he is refuting this idea of this dualistic view of human existence. It isn't that we have a body. It is that we are embodied. You see, there's a difference. Our body is holy, and it is to be understood not as a part of us, but rather an aspect of the whole person. So Paul destroys this wicked philosophy of dualism, which is a form of Gnosticism. And you see, we are here in the West, we are incubating this same form of ancient heresy that devalues the human body and this permissive degradation of the whole uh, excuse me, of the body, is the Gnostic lie which every sexual sin pivots on today. And what do I mean by that? Well, whether it's abortion or homosexual activity or transgenderism, bodily mutilation, whatever it is, this dualist way of see, seeing human existence degrades the human body by detaching it from the real you. So the real you that these Gnostics claim is not your body, but is instead your inner cravings, your desires, your feelings. 
This dualism is part of pagan cosmology. And essentially it says, I am what I feel. You see? And you hear these heretical statements like, I'm a boy trapped in a girl's body. Well, where's that coming from? It's coming from this detachment of the body from the mental, from, from the intellect of that person. It's a separation of the two. And this dualism between the soul and body leads to unimaginable, uh, unimaginable ideas like personhood theory. How many of you have heard of personhood theory? Not one? Oh, no. We have work to do. Personhood theory teaches that your body is not really you. A person is not a function of biology, but an esoteric separate reality. So this view of human existence means that we can kill a baby in the womb in good conscience, and it's not murder because why? It's not a real person. You see? This wicked idea of personhood theory has led to the evils of eugenics, to the evils of genocide. And if you don't think it could take traction here in the mainstream, just consider how Hitler was able to convince his own people that it was a virtue to wipe out an entire group of people. This is all in the name of personhood theory. So if we are to be a holy church, a church that celebrates the distinctions that God has made, we must be aware of what is described as unholy. You see, that's what Yahweh was doing back in Leviticus, is he's telling them, you don't know, but I'm here to tell you, this is what's holy, this is what's not holy. These are the distinctions that are to be celebrated, these are to be rejected, you see. So, we are to be diligent in our discernment of contrast, contrast, right from wrong, honorable, dishonorable, holy and unholy. So, brothers and sisters, we must understand that we are drenched in this pagan cosmology and how we respond is so important for setting forth a picture of who God really is. And it cannot be overstated how important it is to study and live out a biblical cosmology and that starts with the reality that God is holy. He is a holy God. He is distinct and separate from his creation. And at the absence of holiness is the removal of all the distinctions that God has made. So this timeless principle of personal holiness is connected to God's people being studious observers and proclaimers of these created distinctions. So as we move through this series this fall, I trust that you will see just how practical this is in the gender-specific commands given for a holy marriage, in raising children, in the family, in the church, and also in the civil sphere. These distinctions that God has made are holy. They are to be studied, they are to be honored, and they are to be lived out daily in our lives. So this pagan sin against order can be traced back, as we've said, to the Garden of Eden, which offered self-worship as an exchange for honoring distinctions. 
The worship of the Creator is a benefit of casting off the worship, I'm sorry, the worship of the creature is a benefit of casting off the worship of the, creature, of the Creator. So consider when Jesus, our man from heaven, was tempted by the devil to bow down to him, who is a created being, and worship, right? Worship the snake. In order for Christ to be the last Adam, he had to overcome the first Adam's failure. You see, Adam put the creation above God, and Adam was from the earth. But Christ, our man from heaven, put the will of his Father above the creation. And so me, us here, the church, being made in his likeness is to do the same thing, you see. So due to the fall, like Adam, we are all hardwired to nature worship. That is the default religion of all mankind, and it is part and parcel to our lower nature. Consider for a moment the Tower of Babel. In the building of the Tower of Babel, the sentiment was, we will make a name for ourselves. And we will be in charge of our own identity and be in charge of our own significance. In other words, instead of being satisfied with God's telos for humanity, and remember telos means goal, right? Means has to do with the nature of a thing and its goal, its purpose. God's t instead of being satisfied with God's telos to reflect God's wisdom and power by procreation through a pattern of leaving and cleaving and subduing the earth, working and spreading the knowledge of the creator, they sought to disobey God and rebel against their own God-given telos. In other words, they did not want the function and the goal that God had given them as image bearers. And so they wanted to make their own name. They wanted to make and establish their own purpose. So in Babel, they did the opposite of the purpose that God had given them. They congregated instead of spreading. They built up instead of out. They sought a one united world government that would rule over all and that would be completely independent from the creator. So the, the post-flood world sought to unite itself around a pagan conception of the world in which man established his own autonomy. And you could read about that in Genesis 11. So the Western world today has embraced this same cosmology. We are living in the days of Babel 2.0 the natural man does not know himself because he has rejected his maker. He does not regard himself as what he actually is, and that is an enemy of God. So the unregenerate man is, we could say, he's an intellectual apostate. His thought processes are filled with enmity and hostility toward the knowledge of God and towards the claims of his creator upon him. And that's why last week we said that man's duty first begins with his telos, not in the fact that he is a lawbreaker, although he is, but his duty to God is first and foremost a part of who he is as being made in God's image. He owes God his very life. He owes God exactly what God created him to do and to be. So the problem is, is man is a rebel. He is filled with enmity and hostility toward God. 
And so it's not an exaggeration to say that the unregenerate person secretly wishes with all his might that the God of the Bible would either die or stop being God. We don't think that way. That, that sounds almost unbelievable to us because we don't see people as God-haters. Yet consider what Paul wrote in his 14-point indictment in Romans 3, 10 through 8. And he wrote this to remind his readers just how depraved the natural man really is. And he says this, he says, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. What do you mean? Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. You see, this is every human being in their natural condition. So this is the spiritual and moral condition of every lost person. And by the way, it, it's including you and me. That is before he picked you up, he cleansed you. He breathed life into, your spirit, into you spiritually and morally and revived your dead condition. And it is as true today as it was in Rome during Paul's day. So if it weren't for the word of God, man blinded by pride would not come to those conclusions about his own depravity on his own. You ever notice how most, historically speaking, most assessments of man's condition start with the assumption that man is basically good and that he turns to do wrong, but in his turning it is essentially learned by some oppressive social structure, that's what we're told. So we must understand that the natural man, because of his sin and his sin nature, is completely estranged from his maker. So then what does he do? What does he do? Well, like an illegitimate son, he normalizes the abnormality of this separation by bringing his needs to created things. So after working at a maximum security prison for several years, I saw how these tough, uh, you know, tattooed men you know, they had this real tough exterior, and, uh, but, but inside they were, they were childlike, uh, they were broken, and they were full of fear. And they would bring their brokenness continuously to everything that they thought could help dull their conscience. And that, you know, a variety of different ways, drugs, violence, sex, power, so this lack of fear of God helps inform us why people select a cosmology which normalizes a broken and rebellious world in which the divine is but a category contained within the creation itself. So we want to remember the goal of all this confusion of pagan cosmology and this alphabet soup of pronouns and cultural chaos it's really just smoke and mirrors. And it, it is designed to conceal the real goal, which is to remove the binary and usher in an age of chaos that 
ultimately leads to slavery, intellectual slavery, also physical slavery, and all that leads to death. So most of what you see going on around you is really just smoke and mirrors. There's an agenda here. And the agenda is being laid forth by Satan himself. So I see the time ticking. So the choosing of this Gentile cosmology is the default mode of all sinful man. And he does this in order to placate his conscience, you see. See, his conscience, he doesn't like the fact that he has a conscience. And uh, I'm reminded of Ephesians 4, 17 through 19. It says, now, now this I say and testify to the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. In the futility of their minds, they are darkened in their understanding. They are alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them and due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy, to practice every kind of impurity. So paganism functions as that sort of permissive giving worldview that allows him to appease his guilty conscience. He loves darkness, and so he dulls and numbs his moral senses. And that searing of his conscience grants him permission to serve and enjoy his sinful appetites. So this is the end game of this cosmology. Man is digging his, his own grave, you see. And this callousness and hardness of heart has become a very accurate description of the dominant cosmology of our present age. And so one of the problems in the church today is that today's generation has been blindsided so badly by this pagan worldview that's been so heavily politicized that they're unable to discern its heretical nature. We're being told that to assume this cosmology is progressive, it's more compassionate than what we've had in the past. Uh, it's an open-minded view that has, uh, as a consequence, our own culture becomes a new kind of sort of mission field for the first time. You know, America used to be a powerhouse of missions sending to all four corners of the world missionaries. But now our nation is incubating the worst kind of heresy, for the West has decided that there is no such thing as biblical cosmology and no such thing as divine law. So consider how many conservative scholars, pastors, and in turn Christians have recently capitulated to an old earth view of the cosmos. They have been deceived by the secular academy and secular scientists that the earth cannot be young. They've been led into the erroneous thinking that the age of the earth must be compatible with evolution. And I only bring that up to, to demonstrate that even those that would affirm the infallibility and perspicuity of scripture can be led away by the wisdom of men. So you see, this is the first generation in Western history to pre be presented with a comprehensive pagan cosmology. And we need to understand that this erotic freedom that's being demanded 
is tantamount to open war on the knowledge of God for when the sexually ordained boundaries and the creation structures and the distinctions which God has hallowed are regarded as obstacles to freedom, they are laying their nihilistic cards on the table. That life is ultimately meaningless, there's no hope, you create your own meaning, and what happens next? People realize that that's not that's a hopeless view of existence. Suicide is up, as Larry was mentioning. People are lost. They need the truth. So proponents of this erotic freedom, they would have us believe that we are here in the West are continually gaining new freedoms as time passes by, but we're, we're not. This is the, the myth of endless democratization. That is, that if someday the, the idea that we'll arrive at this ultimate freedom in which there will be this blissful, unhindered self-expression. This myth underlies the lie that is being fed to parents that your little boys may become girls and your little girls may become boys. So our young people today, they need to hear that God's boundaries and distinctions are designed for God's glory and also for our good. He's a good God and he provides for his creation and he isn't holding people back. He isn't hiding anything. When biblical cosmology is faithfully taught, it dovetails into the goodness, the wisdom, and the beauty of God's moral government. And this truth by means of the gospel is designed to bring the creature to bow willingly before his maker. So, you know, I was thinking of Isaiah chapter 3, other places too, where part of that judgment of God on a pagan cosmology and a culture that has embraced pagan cosmology, their oppressors become children and women rule over them. And so there is a, when we reject the creator God, the, the, the waterfall effect is that all of his order becomes confused and things don't operate the way that he intended them to. And uh, you know, I think you have pets and children that are ordering families today. We have child climate activists that are dictating law. We have rebellion in the home. We have rebellion in schools, in malls, in cities, in borders. You see, when that confusion sets into a society, the structure, the order the distinctions that God has created, well, they become blurred away. They disintegrate. So the, the, the pagan cosmology of the progressive left is an illusory worldview. It's delusional. And, and, and we're okay in saying that. That's not unnice to say that. <laughs> Don't be afraid to tell them that. It is. And this is Satan's lie, and it's a soul-damning notion that sin creates a new order, a new and more satisfying reality in which one may operate as being autonomous from God. 
So how horrifying to consider that how many of our, how many countless of our neighbors are fully invested in this lie? And Satan's deception has not changed. He claims that you can win your freedom from God. How? By rebelling against him. You see? So, I have about 12 minutes to get to my, through my second point. <laughs> I told you they were long. So, how do we use biblical cosmology to confront today's apostasy? So unlike evangel evangelism in the recent past, our struggle now involves a worldview clash. Um, it, it's not enough to just go and explain Jesus to people. It's not enough to say, okay, um, well, you know, we need to repent and, and believe in Jesus. That's not going to work with this culture. They, they, have, they have a completely different concept of God. They have a completely different concept of the universe. So we're going to have to start big. We're going to have to start where the Bible does, right? God created. You see, the gospel actually begins in Genesis 1. God created. There is the separate distinction between God who is holy and between his creation. By the way, when you remove God as the chief distinction, the prevailing worldview regarding truth will automatically go to relativism. It moves to relativism. There is no truth. Truth is what you make of it. Truth is what you think it is. It's, it's truth for me and there's truth for you. And, and that, that, is, that is what will happen when you remove that distinction. And then, of course, we're back to Jeremiah 17.9, right? that the heart of man is desperately wicked. So what moves in to, fuel, to, to fill the vacuum when you take truth away? Well, it is the wickedness and deceptiveness of the human heart. So Christians need to boldly stress that cosmology and general revelation is infallible and it's inherent. We just read that in Romans 1. Right? The, the creation is infallible at, at telling people that God exists, that there is a creator. So the problem isn't evidence. The problem isn't evidence. The problem is that, that they have a bad heart. They have a bad heart. They are fugitives from God, and they suppress the truth because they are sinners. And I was thinking about the account of Lazarus and the rich man. You remember that, right? A lot of people think that's a parable. It's actually not. It's actually a, an account of a, of a true story that Jesus told. But the rich man in Hades, if you remember, he pleads with Abraham to send Lazarus, who was in, in heaven at that point, back from the dead to his brothers, who, you know, he could, he could show himself that these things were true and that they would repent. So even in hell, it seems that men will still carry this false perception that they maintain some ability to self-interpret and some ability to audit the truth themselves. You see, this darkened mind continues beyond this realm. 
So we need to pin them down and show them that they do not have permission to be the arbiter of truth. They are commanded to believe. They are commanded to repent and believe. It is a sin to not believe what God has said in his infallible word. So the creation is God's general revelation. It is God's book of God's works. It infallibly reveals God and those that suppress the truth are held guilty by God for denying the inescapable truths that are revealed in creation. Prove to me that God exists and I'll believe. No, you won't. You won't because you have all the proof that you need but you have a bad record with God and so you're a fugitive with God uh, from God, you run from God, and you suppress the truth about God, and you exchange that truth for a lie. When that truth is suppressed, it doesn't disappear, but it actually pops back up as soul-destroying heresies and lying cosmologies, which become breeding zones for further idolatrous rebellion, So we must understand that natural man is not a neutral observer. He's not neutral in the matter of God's revealed truth. He's a biased man. He's a rebel. He's a fugitive. And he's on the run from God. And if we don't understand this myth of neutrality, then we will continue to allow the unbeliever to suppress that which he already knows to be true. He's not morally neutral. He's a biased rebel. And he has a heart of stone. In his denial and suppression, he flees into pluralism, naturalism, relativism, all these other things that I described earlier, or we read about, rather. So is it any wonder why so many Christians choose not to witness? Speaking the truth today in this post-Christian climate is a dangerous proposition, but it's a necessary one if we're to proclaim the truth faithfully. If we're to be faithful, we have to proclaim the truth. And as was said earlier this morning, the clock is ticking, right? We're a vapor. We're not going to be here very long. And every moment that passes by is a wasted opportunity to reflect and honor who God is and to proclaim his truth. So... One, one thing that we can do, I think, is to stress these binaries. Stress the binaries, um, that these are hallowed and they're sanctified and they're consecrated binaries. They're, they're, uh, you see, if Satan can remove the binary, then he removes the glory of God. He conceals the glory of God, the glory of God. He he, he makes it evaporate into a sea of just one nothingness. Noth- everything is same. Well, God's splendor, right, is articulated in these distinctions that God has made. So we need to tell, we need to tell, this isn't just, just happened this way. This is a beautiful, harmonious universe. And it's splendid because God has made it that way. And he fits everything together perfectly. So just to give a, somebody's saying, well, 
okay, how does this hit home? How do these distinctions hit home? How are they practical? Let me give you an example. Take a child. When you tell your child to go clean their room, there's a chief reason for them to clean their room. And it's not just a pragmatic thing so they don't trip and fall over things. But God's glory is actually at stake. God's glory is the reason they are to clean their room because as image bearers, we are to reflect God in all we do. God is a God of order. He's not a messy God, right? He has order, he has structure, he has design in all that he has made. Thus, when you keep your room tidy, boys, you tell everyone around you in your little sphere that God is a God of order. When you're teaching your child about lying, you're teaching him about the binary between falsehood and truth. You, you are teaching them about order and disorder. And when they lie, they reflect and, and speak to their little sphere of influence that God is not true, that God is a liar. You see, this is how serious these, these things are. To recognize these distinctions have to do with not just the distinctions in the order of the creation, but also that have to do with falsehood and what is true, with lies and what is true. And so they want to tear apart that binary and confuse the issue so that, uh, morally speaking, there is no more good and there is no more evil. It's all just blended together as what? One. So, biblical cosmology is incredibly edifying, and it strengthens our faith. And I think that is so important, that theology strengthens your faith, you see. It builds you up. It, it gives you um, a confidence to know that when you are interpreting the universe as you go through this world, that you are interpreting it correctly and rightly and you're discerning things and you are honoring God's structure and you're honoring the telos that God created you for and it is incredibly satisfying to know that. We need to know that. But it also gives us all kinds of ammunition so that we can speak the truth to those that don't. So just a couple of sort of cleanup issues. As we engage the world with this pagan cosmology, we need to establish some rules and some boundaries. Number one, just quickly, we must insist that both sides in the debate define their terms. Don't debate with people if they're not willing to define their terms. You see, the words in their vocabulary is, is intentionally deceptive. And it's actually hijacked from the Christian worldview, as we mentioned last week. Equality is a, is a distinctively Christian idea. And without Christianity, nobody even understands what the word equality actually means. But they don't use it in the same way. So make them define their terms. Number two, we also must insist that both sides outline their proposals. What are you saying? Where does this lead? Where, where are we going with this? How does it all end? And number three, that both sides answer all the questions. No debate is actually possible if these three ground rules are rejected. They must answer the questions. You see, they don't want to do that. They want to play dirty. They want to attack. They want to give 
ad hominem arguments. They want to attack your character and drag you through the mud. Walk away. But engage them. But have some ground rules. So when I would teach apologetics at a, at a church we used to go to, I used to say, get familiar with three questions. Three questions, get familiar with. Number one, so what? So what? Number two, says who? And number three, what is your authority? And really, there are three questions designed to take the person to the same place, and that is, where does this come from? What is your authority? I stand on the word of God. The word of God is my authority. God spoke, and he commanded everywhere men to repent. What is your authority? Self? Ultimately, that's, that's the answer. You have to lead them to that, but that's the answer. It's self. See, they, they have to be exposed for what they are. They're, they're not unbiased. They, they, they are deceived, and they're sinful. And they need to come to a place where they recognize that. So, finally, I'll just close with this. <laughs> I am convinced that what is missing in today's modern gospel is God's absolute holiness and justice. And that the Savior himself is Lord of the cosmos. He is the Logos. He is the one who spoke the universe into existence. He upholds it. He sustains it. He is the goal of the universe, and he has determined to find all consummation in this creation in him, that all things would be reconciled, as the Apostle Paul says. So he is the source of biblical cosmology's beautiful order. To boldly speak biblical cosmology into our increasingly pagan world is the most caring and merciful thing that we can do. So we need a theocentric, big-picture theology. For that alone has the power by the Spirit of God to rectify, to calibrate and unify what is frequently fragmented into incomplete thoughts in our understanding. History is his story, right? It's his story. God is conducting a grand demonstration in which he will demonstrate both his mercy and his wrath unto his own glory. So through the theater of redemptive history, God is placing his holy perfections on display and doing so through his works of salvation, through providence, and through judgment. And so we, the church, as trophies of his matchless grace, well, God elicits from believers faith, obedience, love, honor, awe, and there is no undisputed middle ground in the case of God and the destiny of souls. For every individual will either be, there will either be wrath outpoured or there will be eternal refuge in Christ alone who is the distinction maker. So let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we 
humbly bow to you, the creator. You had a plan and a purpose for your creation and you are working it out perfectly according to your sovereign will. There is no bunker that the unbeliever can hide in. There is no rock he can roll over the cave. He is exposed. In fact, we are all exposed. We are all blind in our exposure. We are naked. And we will all give an account of our lives when we stand before you. I pray by your great mercies, Lord, that you will protect us here in this room that are converted, that truly know God, and that have your spirit residing within us. Protect us, enable us, empower us, strengthen us in our weaknesses, and give us the wisdom of your great and merciful and sacrificial son to whom we owe our very existence. And we pray that you would be glorified through us in whichever way you choose to glorify yourself. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.